0: This is a download from Newstalk 106 to 108. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.
1: Talking books on Newstalk 106 to 108.
2: I think he was absolutely of his time. The books work, in my opinion, because you have Bond as this imperial hero. After the war, obviously, Britain is wrecked by, by debt and by everything else that, that happened in the Second World War. And you have a Labour government, which Fleming and a lot of people like Coward detested. You have the welfare state, which he thought was a sort of scrounger's bill. And so, what he produces is this imperial figure who can still project British power all over the world, licensed to kill, putting Britain back on top. And at the same time. In the background, you have this real aching concern with Britain's failing power. So you have Bond really going against the current. It's there in the books as well, and it's that contrast, I think, that makes them work. I can't see him now producing that kind of sort of creative tension from from today's sort of geopolitics.
3: Is the past always present? Hello, good morning, and you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. On this week's show, Spanish novelist Javier Cercas talks Franco, fascism and the workable border between fiction and reality. And how dated is Ian Fleming's fiction? Matthew Parker and Nicholas Daly from UCD's School of English, Drama and Film discuss violence, bigotry and racism in the novels of Ian Fleming. This is a show about myth and imagination, war and heroism, remembrance and craft. But first... Reconstructing the Past with the maestro of historical memory, Javier Cercas. Javier Cercas is a journalist and writer and professor of Spanish literature at the University of Girona in northern Spain. His unique, curious and artful books meander the boundaries between fiction and non-fiction and make for very intense, provocative and hugely absorbing reading. In 2001, just 25 years after the death of Franco, Javier wrote Soldiers of Salamis, an iconic novel about the Spanish Civil War. The book caused a sensation in Spain and later won the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize in 2004. Soldiers of Salamis is wonderfully thought-provoking and looks at the way in which personal subjective memories become dead history. The narrator, who was also called Javier Circus yes, I know, all very confusing, discovers a story of a nationalist prisoner, Rafael Sanchez Massas, who luckily escapes death in the final moments of the Spanish Civil War because of the actions of an unknown soldier. Later, Massas becomes a national hero, a high-profile writer and a minister in Franco's government, while the soldier disappears into history. In Soldiers of Salamis, Javier, the narrator, sets out to discover the real hero of the tale, Here is a beautiful little taster of when circus or narrator meets his hero, Antoni Morales. Nobody remembers them, you know. Nobody. Nobody remembers why they died. Why they didn't have a wife and children and a sunlit room either. Nobody, least of all people for whom they fought. There is no, and there never will be, some pathetic street in one pathetic village of a shitty country that is named after any of them. Morales stopped talking. He took out his handkerchief, wiped the tears, blew his nose. He did so without shame, as if he was not ashamed of crying in public, as Homer's warriors of old did, as any soldier of Salamis would do. Javier cites Cervantes, Porges and Philip Roth as his creative drivers, and writes in Soldiers of Salamis, Real heroism is someone who has a courage and an instinct for virtue, and therefore never makes a mistake, or at least doesn't make a mistake, the one time when it matters, and therefore can't not be a hero. Javier's books include The Speed of Light, The Anatomy of a Moment, Soldiers of Salamis, and Movil. Most of his big reads are also available in English and are translated by Anne McLean. Javier also writes a popular column for El Pais. Well, a few weeks ago, I got the chance to meet with the fast-talking, no messing Javier Circus at the Dublin Writers' Festival, and within minutes found myself deep in a very stimulating and lively conversation. I have to say, he kept me on my toes. I asked Javier about the relationship between ambiguity, history and the novel, and where he stood on things. Let's take a listen.
1: Ambiguity is, in my view, the essence, the core of literature, in the sense that it is the space that the, the writer gives to the reader to make the book its own book. And that's exactly literature. I mean, uh, it's the reader who uh, makes literature. Without the reader, the books, special novels that don't exist. It's the reader who plays the magic of opening the book and creating, you know, a new world. And every reader constructs, makes his own book. And without this ambiguity, it's impossible to do it. That's the essence of, of literature. And history is the same. I mean, I think that literature deals with, with the complexities of life. And history is a part of this complexity. And yeah, some of my books deal with history, but I hate this label of historical novel. I don't write historical novels. I write novels in which history play a role. Because as I also said today, past is a is a dimension of the present. Quoted uh, Fulner saying, past is not dead, it's not even past. And yeah, I said, we live today in a sort of uh, dictatorship of the present, thinking that, only with present it's possible to explain present, but this is not true. Without past, we cannot understand present, because past is a dimension, is a part of this present.
3: And do you think we ever get at the truth? Do you think we ever really know and can understand what, on any given event, what really happened? Everyone looks at things also differently, and in your writing, I suppose, you attempt to look at what the facts are and shape them and where that meets the reader. So do we ever understand the facts and can we ever be clear on the facts?
1: Well, yeah, there are some facts that we can say they're truth. I mean, I, I'm an old-fashioned man. I believe ex- truth exists. But uh, people who think that they have the truth or fanatics or stupid or both things, which is more the more normal thing, being both stupid and fanatic. My books deal exactly with that point. And I think in, in the end, all novels deal with that point. What is the point? The point is that we look for truth, but we finally cannot grasp it. We are always on the verge of getting it. And finally, truth, I mean, moral truth escapes from us. I mean, of course, we can, we can, I mean, it exists, let's say, the journalistic truth or the historical truth or... It is. Ex- I mean, we are here, right? This is truth, for sure. But moral truth is different. Moral truth is m- much more complex than that.
3: And moral truth also is shaped by emotion, previous experiences, and your understanding of the world. So your moral truth and my moral truth on, let's say, Franco, for instance, may be a little different. Of
1: course. That's the complex truth with which deals exactly literature. And... Um a long time ago, Aristotle said one thing which is very important. There are two truths. We can say that there are two truths. That's my interpretation of He makes a difference between history and literature. And he says, in short, uh, you know, the historical truth is a concrete truth. It's a practical truth. It's uh, what happened to some people some place at a certain moment. But there is the uh, literary truth, which is different. It's about... What happened to everybody in every place mm. at every time? That's a, that's a literary truth, and that's universal. That's an abstract truth. That's a moral truth, mm. and that's much more complex. And that's always yes ambiguous. Mm. That changes with everybody. But we co- recognize this moral truth, which is ambiguous, which is uh, not clear and unequivocal. This is not the the literary or moral truth. Uh, this m- truth is something much more complex. Some, there's always shadows in it. There's always things that change. You know, it's contradictory.
3: But there's a beauty to the contradiction. Yes. And it's very, very interesting. And surely as a writer, that must make things also curious. You said on your talk that you, you write from obsession. Can you talk to me about that?
1: Well, it's, it's, it's quite easy. I mean, there are some things that I don't understand and that become obsessions. And that's, I mean, that's what makes me writing. Hemingway said, I respect Hemingway. He said that we must write about what we know. Well, I'm the contrary, exactly the contrary. I write about what I don't know, and I write to know. So my, the writing is an instrument of knowledge for me. So there are some things that I don't understand. And when I keep thinking about it and becomes an obsession, well, I know that there is a book there. For instance, I don't know uh, why a soldier, Republican soldier saves the life of a fascist at the end of the civil war, a fascist that has responsibilities and after that and becomes a minister of Franco. Why he saves the life and why he doesn't do what is in the... War is normal, mm. uh, which is killing him or taking him prisoner. Why that? And I, 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 I wake up in the morning and say, shit, this man, why did that? Mm. And that becomes an obsession. And then it, it is a question for me. And the, this, are, of course, has a historical dimension, but has especially moral dimension. Why this? And when this becomes an obsession, I know that there is a book there. And and I write not to answer that question because the novel is the gender of Questions, not of answers. At least of clear and equivocal answers. I I write to formulate this question in the most possible complex way. That's why I write a book. But I think this is very general. I mean, imagine big writers like Kafka. You know, he writes obviously. your, your, Your obsession can be, you know, the idea of a man waking up in the morning and becoming an insect. And I think that the writer must be. Faithful to his obsessions, that, that my way of thinking in writing.
3: You spoke about rules and that every book has a rule and that you need to stick to the rules. But what about the psychology when in the book?
1: Psychology in the book. Mm. I mean, writing a novel is like constructing a game, and every game has its own rules. So that's the idea, right? And every novel, every good novel, has different rules because every novel is a way of, to formulate in the more possible complex way, as I said, Uh, one question. And every question is different. Mm. So if the question is different, the way to formulate it should be different. So the rules should be different. That's very important. That's, in my way, very important. And, uh, well, psychology, I don't know. I mean, of course, the characters I create or I recreate, if they are historical, have their psychology. But, I I mean, I'm not sure I care about psychology. What I care is about truth. I mean, I want them to be alive, Mm. to be real. And for that reason, they have to have a psychology. Okay, very good. But the point is that they should be alive. They should be real. They literally doesn't look for something called beauty. It looks for something called truth, which is if truth and beauty are different. Kids thought that, well, the same thing. I, I think that they yeah, are the same thing. That's for me what is important, that the book is alive, that the reader feels that this is truth, that everything is true, that this is happening, that this is happening to him.
3: And I suppose the answers are very different to every reader.
1: Because every reader makes, makes his own book, as I said, right? I mean, it doesn't exist one, let's say, outlaws, which is the, my last book. Every reader makes he, his own book. The way in which every reader reads it is different. Should be different because the reader is different. Because reading is an experience, a personal experience. It's not something abstract, it's personal. So the interpretation is different. The characters are different. The interpretation in the musical sense.
3: I'm going to take a different tack here and ask you a bit about politics. I'm wondering about current events in Spanish society and about Catalan and independence. I think your wife is Catalan.
1: Well, I am Catalan mm. also. I speak Catalan at home. Mm. I am Catalan in the sense that I went there when I was four years old. And yes, I talk about that, but my opinion is easy. Well, it's difficult, but I, I wrote about it. I write about it in newspapers and mm. so on and so forth. If there's a majority of Catalan people... Who want to be independent? I don't know exactly what means that today, but anyway. I mean, today we are in mm. the European Union and etc. Mm. I believe that the only reasonable utopia we Europeans have created is uh, the European Union. I mean, we have created a lot of murderous utopias, right? So theoretical paradises that have become real infernos, uh, real hells. But the only reasonable utopia is, you know that Europe becomes, you know, a federal state, something like that. We can go on being, you know, Spanish or Catalan or whatever or German, but creating something that is one thing. This is the best thing we have created. But if there is a majority of Catalans that want to be independent, I don't know what it is, I insist, of course there should be a referendum because it's more dangerous not to have mm. a referendum than having it. But the point, my dear friend, is that today in Catalan Parliament, do you know how many deputies that want to be independent, that they have said clearly, in a clear and inequivocal way, that they want to be independent? Nineteen percent. We are living in a sort of fictitious creation. The autonomy of Catalonia is enormous mm. in economical, mm. political. I mean, we have a big autonomy.
3: But it's also about memory and pride in a culture and pride in a language being that distinct.
1: No, it's. I don't agree with that. I don't agree because... In our schools, the predominant language is Catalan. We have a literature. We have all our media in Catalan. We have everything. I mean, we have, what is the problem then with that? I, I think that from the outside, the idea that Catalonia is an oppressed country is totally ridiculous. You think it's, it's all a, missing
3: the point? It's not missing
1: the point. It's telling a lie, which is different. I know that there are some people that say, no, we are oppressed. What do you mean? I mean, in the school, all is in Catalan. The only language, and they, they have like 5% in Spanish, everything is in Catalan. In TV, Catalan, newspapers, Catalan. What is the problem? The problem is that there is an elite who wants you know, to hold the power. That is the problem. But I insist. I mean, talking about an oppressed culture is simply telling a lie. What is more important than dependence or independence mm. is democracy. I believe in democracy. And democracy means that if there is a majority of people who want that, well, let's make a referendum. But... What is not it's telling lies Mm. or confusing people. That's what I don't like.
3: Now, I know that you're very interested in Cervantes as a writer. Can we talk a little bit about Lorca, the poet, and the debates on Lorca and how politics and culture has moved on in Spain, but that memories of missing people are still somewhat entrenched in political life?
1: Well, Lorca is a a big poet. It's an enormous Mm. poet, Mm. right? But uh, uh, I guess that you're talking about his death, which was awful. And about the recovery of -hmm. his remains. But there's also misunderstandings and lies about Mm -hmm. that and cliches, awful cliches. Because, of course, of course, I am as everybody with a sense of reality that there are still in Spain people dead in the Spanish Civil War that have not been honored and all this and that. So they have, if the families want it, they have to be disinterred and put in an honorable place and etc., with public money and so on and so yeah. forth. That's obvious. But there are lies and clichés. Lorca's family yeah. think that it's awful and ridiculous and dishonor to dis- disinter, look for, like if it was a festival or a fiesta, you know, or something like that in CNN and yeah. things like that, looking for the remains of the poet. Yeah. They think that it's bare the reality, the history. He's honored remembering mm. his awful death, you know. Mm. And they don't want the remains of Lorca being looked for like if it was, I don't know, Eurovision or something mm. like that, mm. you know. They don't want that to become a party for foreigners and for CNN. Mm. And, for, and this is, I respect that mm. because I respect the family. And the family is not stupid people. They're very cultivated and very, you know, serious. And they they have decided that. They have the right to to do that. I mean, who am I to to say, no, we need the remains of Lorca in the cathedral. They don't want it. And they think that it should be like that. Because this enormous poet, a magnificent person, was killed in an awful way. So it should remain like that. And they have the right to do that. It simply lies. I mean, we're working all the time. The worst thing is that we're working all the time for an industry of show business. History is becoming part of the show business. Politics is becoming part of the show, show business. But history is never, never objective, never clear. I mean, this doesn't exist. All countries around the world, especially European countries, well, not all countries, have a history of very problematic mm. and they need to cope with it in a ver- the most honest possible way. Spain has, hasn't done it, but I don't think Ireland has done it, either. Nor England, nor, I mean, America or wherever. The country that has dealt in the most honest possible way with its past is Germany. I mean, Spanish history is not an exception.
3: And that was Spanish novelist Javier Circus. Javier's latest book, Outlaws, a novel set in the Catalan city of Girona in northern Spain in the late 1970s to the early 2000s And is inspired by the life of the heroic outlaw Juan Jose Moreno Cuenca. Outlaws published by Bloomsbury and retails at about fifteen euro. So if you like your novels laced with a bit of human vulnerability, grit and dirt, well you won't be disappointed. Javier does it in style. Okay, coming up next, we're going to move into the thrilling, sexy world of high octane action and espionage and take a look at one of adventure fiction's greatest characters. But first Let's take a bit of a break. Talking books on new so 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. Well, I'm sure you've guessed it. We're going to look at the ultimate British imperial icon, the dashing, the dangerous, the irresistible, shaken, not stirred sex machine. That is 007. Think from Russia with love, Dr. No, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, Moonraker, Casino Royale and Live and Let Die. Now we all have our favourite Ian Fleming book. And of course, our own kinky idea of who and what makes for the best Bond our Bond girl. And I don't know about you, but the last few buffed up wannabes, well, they just didn't cut the mustard. Too clean, too blonde, too boring. But how does Ian Fleming's fiction stand up in today's competitive thriller writing world? Is it all a bit dated? Well, a superb new book, Golden Eye, where Bond was born in Fleming's Jamaica, has just been written by Matthew Parker. From 1946 until the end of his life, Ian Fleming lived, two months of every year, at GoldenEye, the house he built on a point of high land, overlooking Jamaica's north coast. All the Bond movies and short stories were written there. Fleming adored Jamaica. He saw it as a perfect mix of British old-fashioned imperial values and the exciting exotic. And it was this killer combination he brought... Into the social and political landscape of his best selling books. I really enjoyed reading about his friendship with English playwright Noel Coward. They seemed very close, and Matthew has some very touching background stuff on their friendship. Now, what's so appealing about this book is not just its clever structure, but all the fascinating insights and details you get into Ian Fleming's personal makeup. The book also features some terrific photographs. And the best lines from all the books, like this one, for example, from M to Bond in From Russia With Love, doesn't do to get mixed up with neurotic women in this business. They hang on your gun arm, if you know what I mean. Well, last weekend, I had the pleasure of meeting up with Nicholas Daly, Professor of Modern English and American Literature, UCD School of English, Drama and Film, and Matthew Parker to discuss the life and writing's of arguably Britain's most popular post-war adventure fiction writer. I started out by asking Matthew Parker about the dark side of 007's author and whether he would consider Ian Fleming a misogynist writer. After all, think of poor old pussy galore.
2: One of the many things that's fascinating about Fleming is that he is one of the very few survival from his age. If you look at the 1950s in terms of music and art and fashion and certainly relation, sort of attitudes towards gender, race, sexuality. You know, we've cast so much of this stuff aside, um, you know, thank goodness. But somehow Fleming and Bond have survived. Um, and this is one of the, the fascinating questions that he throws up. I don't think you can deny that he's misogynist, but I think you can possibly sort of misquote him. I mean, what, the, the novel that is that is most castigated is, of course, The Spy Who Loved Me, which is actually Fleming's only real attempt at a credible female character.
3: How simplistic a writer was he?
2: I don't think simplistic at all. I think that he grew up, as we all know, on the likes of sort of Buchan and Ryder Haggard and Sax Romer and Bulldog Drummond, all of these 1930s clubland heroes. And his achievement was to update these people, um, these writers, and to give the reader the same excitement but in a context that was, for its time, utterly modern. He was, of course, described as the uh, John Buckham for the supersonic age.
3: Now, Bond is an incredibly fascinating character. He's exciting, he's interesting. But is he credible as a character, Nick?
0: I think there's a certain sort of energy there that that still works. He, he's he's not that straightforward a character. There's a certain complexity there. You know, he's, he's not exactly... Uh, a happy soul he's very much the the loner even though he often gets the girl at the at, at the end of uh, of the narrative if she's not killed off but he's he's he he's not really um in, in some ways he's a very modern sort of sort of self you know he's is, he is quite sort of uncomfortable a lot of the time i think he's he, he's he, he's not self satisfied he's very violent he is very violent uh, and and that of course is, is one of the things that um, the first generation of critics homed in on that there was a, a lot of violence a lot of what, what they saw as sort of sadomasochism for its own sake in, in the novels um but i i think it's it's very worth bearing in mind that the first Bond novel appears about eight years after the end of World War Two. Um, a lot of his readers would would have seen a lot of, a lot of violent death themselves, uh, or if they hadn't seen it seen it directly, that they would have a, a sense of it as, as part of the kind of background of their lives. They are very much post war novels in that respect. I think
3: I know that he was a naval commander during World War Two. He went to Eton. He comes from a very plummy family.
2: His family were, were wealthy, but they were fairly sort of on his father's side new money and he you know, when sort of looking at his i suppose what made his character he very much saw it in terms of sort of national stereotypes of scottishness and englishness his father's family were very dour and austere scots who um, although um, his grandfather founded a merchant bank which made the the family's fortune. He never took a taxi in his life. His mother, on the other hand, was vain, extravagant, selfish, and controlling. Fleming... He never really fitted in anywhere. He wasn't old money. He wasn't quite new money. Um, He did go to Eton and basically found it far too strict um, and really chaffed at the restrictions. His mother then sent him to Sandhurst, and that doesn't work out either. And he drifts around. I mean, there's been stuff you've maybe you've seen it in the press recently about boarding school syndrome i don't know if you've come across this it's the sort of latest thing that people have discovered they've got and and the symptoms of this um of course his father died when he was eight in, in 1917 and he was sent off to these very old-fashioned boarding schools even the you know, prep schools even for the time they were they were absolutely horrendous bullying and, and and so on and he you know you look at boarding school syndrome and it's things like inability to sort of relax and, and difficulty with having relationships with women, uh, substance abuse, and you can go through this list and just for Fleming, sort of tick, 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 tick. And really up until the war, he was a, a bit of a lo- lost soul. He was very good at seducing women. That's You know, on the record, he was extraordinarily popular with with women, but never really managed to put together a proper relationship. And then the war sort of rescued him. It gave him a sense of purpose. It played to his strength of imagination. He dreamed up all of these often quite harebrained um, intelligence schemes. And then the end of the war saw him again cast adrift. But in the meantime, in 1943, he'd been out to Jamaica for an Anglo-US naval conference to deal with the U-boat threat that was causing havoc in the Caribbean at the time. And although the weather was terrible and it rained the whole time, he just found somewhere where he, as later friends would say about him in Jamaica, where he could be as much of himself as there was. He fell in love with this place and vowed in '43 come back and build a house in Jamaica and write books there. Now, it took, as Nick said, eight years after the war before, you know, he sat down in '52 to write Casino Royale. But the intention was there. And this was somewhere where this very, very awkward, scratchy personality could find some sort of, not just comfort, but of course, artistic inspiration as well.
3: Well, he certainly was complicated in his private life and so was his poor, unfortunate wife. They both seemed to have been as unfaithful to each other
2: course of researching my book Golden Night I've spoken to all of the the family that I could track down and his actually Anne Anne Fleming his his wife son she, she was her third marriage her, her first marriage produced two children and, and Raymond who's Lord Lord O'Neill um and he said to me they should never have married Fleming was not the marrying type uh, and neither were really suited for monogamy or the, the sort of I guess the compromises that go to making a successful marriage and they only married because she was pregnant um, and Fleming thought, even though all his friends advised against it, that he should do the right thing uh, and marry her. And the, it was they were very, very different personalities. They were um, She was intensely sociable. She was probably London's most famous hostess for sort of, you know, dinners and so on. And he, as I've said, he liked his own company and, and simple life. And sadly, the marriage caused both of them huge amounts of exhausting
3: unhappiness. Nick, can we talk a bit about Casino Royale, his first book? How good is it? How original is it? And how memorable is it?
0: I think it actually, it is memorable uh, and it's quite un, quite an unusual book. Um, apart from anything else, you have these long, detailed scenes of gambling in the casino, which are described with with great nuance and, and clearly with considerable knowledge uh, of, of of the baccarat table, something something quite like twenty one. And you get similar scenes in, say, Moonraker, where there's not, not just elaborate descriptions of of bridge, but actually he gives kind of bridge notation within the chapter. Uh, so if you, if you can read that, you can kind of follow the game to some extent. So it's it's not quite what you expect, I think, as a as a novel. It's it's there's a, a lot of that kind of indoors gambling there's some of the kind of trademarks, all right. That there's there's a lot of the the props as, as as he himself called them that that he that he gives to to Bond to kind of flesh him out. So you get a lot of what we would now kind of see as product placement. The Ronson lighter, certain brands of champagne he favours Tatinje uh, over other kinds. It's the best apparently, and, and and that develops through the the, the later novels as well to, to the point where um he, he actually you know begins to give tips about what kinds of women's scent are, are, are the best kinds. Almost the kind of detail that you would now expect from a you know a shopping and Shagging novel, I suppose. You you get here around what is actually, you know, quite an otherwise lively, violent spy novel.
3: And I suppose that was a journalist in him because he spent 10 months a year writing for the Sunday Times. I'm interested to know, though, how he's known to be so wonderfully accessible that he could reach out to those who didn't have the same educational opportunities, that his sentences weren't too long. They were actually quite short. They were very straightforward. The language was very simple and he didn't outsmart the reader. And in ways you can embrace it and, and it's not intimidating anyway. So do you think that's what why he sold so many books? Because he reached out to the common reader.
0: I think that that's a very interesting idea. Uh, and, and, and it, it is w- worth thinking about the actual prose sort of words on the page of the books as you say it is often quite pared down he sometimes gets criticised for his dialogue but actually by and large you know it's, it's, it's snappy enough I think it's not too ponderous and if you compare him to say somebody who begins to write towards the end of his of his career somebody like John Le Carre who also knew a lot about um, the Secret Service um the the prose is completely different, uh, and there's a lot more kind of philosophical content in the in the Le Carre, a far more kind of murky view of the world. It's all black and white in there are good guys and bad guys in 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 the Bond novels. We know who the good guys are. Um, Britain is is a, a power for good in the world. Uh, there's not that kind of sense of double crossing and of, of of moral grayness that you get in 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 Eric Ambler or Le Carre or somebody like that. So so yes, I, I think part of it is the, the straightforwardness. Uh, a certain kind of crisp, lively prose that, that that describes scenes, action very, very vividly. And I suppose you, you, you don't get much sense of a kind of an Etonian aspect to the, to the books, really. It's almost as if he is anticipating film treatment. They're quite short novels. They kind of weigh in around 200 pages. Very few of them are kind of big door stoppers. Um, none of them, really. In that sense, they're actually quite sort of. Inverticum is thin, um, not, not not just literally but kind of metaphorically, that there's you have to supply, I suppose, a certain amount yourself because the, the novels themselves are very much focused on physical detail, what what Bond is seeing, hearing, feeling. There's there's not a lot of, of thought, as, as it were. You know, there's, there's not a lot of kind of thinking about thinking uh, in, in these books. There's, there's not a lot of in, interiority, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say.
2: I'm, I'm fascinated by the comparison with John McCarray, who actually, while writing this book, I, I suddenly started, I don't know why, but started obsessively reading John Le Carre. And they are incredibly different books. I mean, Le Carre's been described, I mean, his heroes, Lemus and and Smiley, they're sort of anti-bonds. You know, they have none of his assurance and his his sort of panache. But there's a fascinating interview that that I read that I think Le Carre gave to a German magazine um, a few years ago where... He talks about the fact that he rejoined the Secret Service, having sort of left in feeling a bit disillusioned and then rejoins and the interviewer says, Well, why did you why did you do this? And his reply was that, that it was sort of like going home and what what he found in the Secret Services is I think he described it as it was the last church of empire theology, the last place where the, the, the Britain of the Empire still existed. And that's, of course, exactly what the the attraction is for Fleming. I think that's a very interesting comparison. And just to, just to sort of take up on Nick's point about Casino Royale and your, your point, about the Sue, about the accessibility of Fleming, I think what is um, slightly shocking to remember now is that the book published by Jonathan Cape in London, which is a highbrow literary imprint, they'd never published thrillers or anything like that. They wouldn't c- consider it. And what Bond was, what the Bond novels were at first seen as, and certainly by Fleming, was highbrow by literary fiction. These were written for knowing readers who would pick up the parodic elements. In all of the Bond books, Fleming gives these knowing asides to the reader. Every single one, at one point, one of the characters will say, well, this is ridiculous. This is just like a comic book. Or um, Red Grant in um, From Russia With Your Love says to Bond, when he's pointing the gun at his heart, no bulldog drum and stuff will get you out of this. There's this constant as I said, sort of winks to the reader. But what happened, and Fleming actually wrote a letter in the mid-50s, he was, uh, as you said, he he really did see this as film and TV properties, and he was writing to CBS in the States and saying, my books were originally intended for the A-reader. But now they're in paperback, and of course this is part of the paperback revolution in Pan. Fleming says, I, I intended them for the A reader, but actually I found that the B and C readers like them as well. So this really came as a surprise to him, this accessibility that, that you've been
3: talking about. Now, one of the appealing facts to me is the, the exotic locations, the journeys that you go on, and the extraordinary locations that you, you visit. Do you think that element of fantasy sold so many books?
2: Well, there's certainly, uh, uh, when he wrote Moonraker, which is his his third novel, the only one set entirely in England, he actually got complaints from readers. People wrote to him saying, that we don't want to be taken out of ourselves to Kent. We want to go to Jamaica and the Seychelles and the United States, which, of course, represented excitement and modernity. And Fleming himself said, you know, it doesn't rain in Bond novels. And really, a lot of their appeal, I mean, this has been said before, was how they provided international jet-set travel for readers in, in England who or in Britain who couldn't actually afford, you know, in those days, um, this was the preserve of the of the super-rich. And I think that, you know, that's really where Jamaica comes in as well, because Jamaica suddenly, in the end of the 1940s, partly led by people like Fleming and his neighbour, um, the, the first person who stayed at GoldenEye was Noel Coward, and he then bought houses and all his theatre friends came out, all the Hollywood stars, Marilyn Monroe, Catherine Hepburn, Errol Flynn, of course, they all came out there. And Fleming really just had to look out of his window and he could find this exciting world that, that Bond could move in which, of course, was hugely exciting for, for readers, readers back at home.
3: How difficult a relationship did he have with the booze? He was a very, very heavy drinker and he suffered tremendously from anxiety and had a very serious heart condition. So I'm just wondering, how did his addiction to booze affect his writing? Do you think it's evident in the last few books his deteriorating mental as well as physical condition
2: well i think we would now he would now be diagnosed as a depressive certainly and his wife too was a depressive they were both substance dependent um, and several times checked into a sort of clinics, rather like shrublands in in from russia with love in order to wean herself off the barbiturates to which she'd become dependent um, And he had a a similarly unhappy relationship with alcohol. And you can see this with Bond, and you can certainly see this with the last few novels. Um, You Only Live Twice, which is the one set in Japan, is... Well, what we see Bond, apart from anything else, drinking extraordinary, extraordinary amounts, and then probably his most disappointing book, which was the last of the three Jamaica books, um, *The Man and the Golden Gun*. People in Jamaica said by that said to me that by that stage he could only really work for about an hour a day. He'd already had a heart attack, and it, but it was part of his the way that he saw himself. Uh, the more that he was told not to drink and smoke, the more he drank and he drank and smoked, uh, and that was the way his uh, his attitude to life. I mean, one of his friends described him as a death wish Charlie, and he certainly had a, a very self destructive streak, which uh, of, of course was was
3: his undoing. Nick, do you think he copied from any other writers, or certainly repackaged some other classic styles in the genre?
0: Oh, sure. And he was somebody who had grown up reading H. Rider Haggard, John Buchan, the Sapper novels, the Bulldog Drummond series, uh, people like that. And and he, he, he clearly does recycle some of those. So there's, there's a lot of somebody like Richard Hannay, say, from the John Buchan novels, The 39 Steps and Green Mantle and, and uh, Mr. Stanfest, those novels. There's a lot of Hannay, I think, in uh, a hero like, like Bond. There's the same sort of toughness, the same sort of man of the world, I suppose, aspect, though Hannay is a far more kind of, you know, Scottish clean living. Late Calvinist type, I think, than, than than Bond is, but he 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 does also not only does he borrow from those earlier writers, but he sometimes he he gestures towards them in playful ways. So my, my, my favourite example of this is in From Russia with Love, where um, as 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 the the Smirch hitman fires at, at at Bond, he's actually saved by a copy of an Eric Ambler novel that he just happens to have in, in 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 his coat at the time. The book saves him. They they, they are quite um, self aware novels, and and there are playful little little touches here and there that that make you realise that Bond is not is, is not so much kind of stealing from people as kind of quite self-consciously borrowing and in some ways kind of doing a sort of homage even to some of those writers.
2: Um, and if you look at Dr. No which is one of the, obviously one of the classic Bond villain and the, the the sort of anti-hero of the first film, there's more than a little bit of uh, Dr. Fu Manchu in you know, saxophone, this great creation. Fleming himself said he grew up on, on Fu Manchu, he said to Raymond Carver.
3: But when we talk about borrowing there, is it that all writers do this or that just some are craftier than others on how they disguise it?
0: I think all writing is, 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 is not just rewriting your own prose but it is obviously drawing on the prose of others. So yeah, I mean I'm, I'm not sure that, that, I, that, that I would think of, of Fleming as, as, as particularly bad in this respect. I think actually, you know, his, his novels actually are quite distinctive.
3: The sexual politics in Ian Fleming's books, as a woman reading Ian Fleming, they're a frightening proposition
1: sure.
3: because every woman is used and abused in some way. He's the ultimate cat. He flies through women and and
2: doesn't even stick
3: around for breakfast. So do you think he can have any enduring appeal in, in the 21st century?
2: Okay. Pino Royale, Bond has his heart broken by, by Vesper, who turns out to be uh, a traitor, so spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't read it yet. And then you look at Diamonds Are Forever, where he falls in love with Tiffany Chase, and then he has a relationship with her after the book. So at the beginning of the next book, you know, you talk about, and she goes off with someone else. Um, even the Ursula Andrus character, Honey Child Rider, Bond is, is, is he's dropped by her in favour of a an American physiotherapist, or something rather sort of mundane, and, and Bond gets very upset by that, and Gala Brand in Moonraker is to someone else and reject him. I think if you look at the books rather than the films you'll find a more complicated and even less misogynist um, attitude than, than in the
0: films. I, I would partly agree. I think, I think there probably are aspects that the modern reader is going to find just hard to stomach um, in in Casino Royale there's a reference to the sweet tang of rape and this this is a thought of of Bond's rather than something you know that, that Fleming is necessarily believing himself but you know it's 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 there and it's kind of unquestioned. There's there's always that kind of hint that that sexual violence is is sort of part of the of the of the appeal of of Bond for women that they they, they like being um, pushed around and there's, there's also that this kind of this uh, probably 1950s notion that homosexuality can be cured by the right kind of man. So at, at, at the end of Goldfinger, Pussy Galore is, is sort of um, rerouted sexually by the, the love of, of the right kind of man. And I, I think those aspects probably, you know, they are of their of their, of their their time. The women
2: that Bond like, well, first of all, they've got to be heavy smokers and drinkers, obviously. Um, and if they like gambling, that's great as well. But they're all slightly damaged. They've all been... Yes raped as children or they've had their orphans or you know they're all slightly with a broken wing um and his job is is to i suppose to sort of put them back together but that's certainly the, the type of i mean the woman he marries tracy is obviously, is suicidal i mean that's how one well, the secret service opens with her trying to commit suicide um and this is as you said a very 1950s view of sort of you know the strong man to the rescue
3: so if ian fleming was writing today matthew What type of uh, postmodern man and 007 would we get? How would you describe it, or could you?
2: I can't see Fleming writing today. I think he was absolutely of his time. The books work, in my opinion, because you have Bond as this imperial hero. He's um, after the war. Obviously, Britain is wrecked by by debt and by um, everything else that that happened in the Second World War. And you have a Labour government, which Fleming and a lot of people like Coward detested. You have the welfare state, which he thought was a sort of scrounger's bill. And so what he produces is this imperial figure who can still project British power all over the world, licensed to kill, putting Britain back on top. And at the same time, in the background, you have this real aching concern with Britain's failing power so you have Bond really going against the current that's there in the books as well and it's that contrast I think that makes them work I can't see him now producing that kind of sort of creative tension from from today's sort of geopolitics
3: and Matthew if you had to bring to Jamaica just three books, which which three in Fleming would you bring
2: oh I think my first impulse is to say Live and Let Die, his second novel written in 53, which really, I mean, Casino Royale is slightly different, as as Nick was explaining to to the rest of the canon. Um, Live and Let Die is where he really establishes the formula of sort of lots of travel and the larger-than-life villain, um, all the concern with race, and, and more than anything, actually, the underwater scenes. Fleming was at his best when he was writing about what he knew about, like everyone. And what he knew about was the reef, because that's what he did in Jamaica. He just endlessly went out on the reef, dodging the sharks and barracudas and catching lobsters and befriending octopuses and this kind of thing. And it also has very short chapters which drag the reader on, and it's a really fond evocation of both harlem and of of jamaica that that's really my my top novel um after that i would probably go for dr no just because again it has so much interest in and set around where he lived in in on the north coast of jamaica after that i'm slightly struggling to find i'd probably go for casino royale because of that wonderful scene in the in the casino with the
3: the cards and the chiffre—it's absolutely spellbinding. And Nick, what would you pick?
0: I'd agree with the Casino Royale; well worth having for for its sheer sheer oddness, perhaps. I have a soft spot for um, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. there there's a. A way in which the, the, the characters be, do become more complex. And in the quite late On Her Majesty's Secret Service, he's given more of a sense of humour. It's actually, quite, it's, a, it's a lighter novel. You have characters with, with fabulous names like Sable Basilisk uh, and Bond spends a great deal of his time in the novel putting together these sort of complicated genealogical tables. He's, he's sort of forced into this kind of drudge work for for, for long periods. It's, it's, it's really quite tongue-in-cheek and, 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 and quite funny, I think. After that, perhaps um one of, one of the kind of middle period ones... um. Goldfinger has a a, a lot of of interesting content. But, yeah, I think we've probably got a fair range there.
2: I think Goldfinger has a fatal plot flaw doesn't he doesn't it which is, which is, comes back in The Man with the Golden Gun where Bond is employed by the villain to help. Yeah. And and that, That's really, sort of so, that really threw me off. The one I should have mentioned was Thunderbolt, which I think is terrific because it's real home territory with pirates and pirate treasure and all of this stuff and again these wonderful under, underwater scenes.
3: And do you think he stands as against maybe a Graham Greene for you to look at other great British writers writing about espionage in in extremely interesting locations. Do you think he compares and is as good?
2: I think I think he's important because of the huge success of the books and the even greater success of the of the films, to the extent where, you know, James Bond is on he's a national icon for British people. He appears at the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games and steals the show. He's really important to to look at and to analyse and to see what he tells us about ourselves having him as an icon. I don't think he's a literary writer in the way that green often is and the way that le carré certainly is but at the same time there are parts of those books I'm, I'm thinking of the the end of live and let die where bond and solitaire are tied together and dragged across the reef in the hope of, of, of killing them by mr big A thriller writing absolutely of the top order
3: Daily from UCD's School of English Drama and Film and British writer Matthew Parker. Matthew's book, Golden Eye, where Bond was born in Fleming's Jamaica, is published by Hutchinson and retails at about 25 euro. Well, that's it for talking books for another week. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Now, for all Ian McCune fans out there, I see Ian is giving a reading at the Pavilion Theatre in Laoghaire County Dublin, on Sunday, the 19th of October. Very exciting, and what an interesting man and mind. And on that point, English writer Sebastian Gross has just recently edited a really interesting critical book of essays on Ian McCune, and I'll be bringing you an interview I did with Sebastian very shortly. Okay, all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Owen Holligan, who helped out with today's show, and the lovely Marianne Kennedy on sound. We've been talking books. Let's go easy and light to the words of Spanish Poet and playwright Federico Garcia Lorca, who said once, we're all curious about what might hurt us.